some of us, particularly me with my physics background, are interested in also reading Manuel de Landa's uh, interpretation of Deleuze's philosophy and ontology in terms of uh, contemporary mathematics and science. Um, so we are starting the book Intensive Science and uh, Virtual Philosophy. Uh, we've read the first chapter so far. Um, and uh, we're going to get into this. Um, want to talk about a couple things first, which was uh, why I chose this name, A Bridge Across Differences, when uh, Brooks, our main admin, uh, asked me to come up with a subtitle last week. And um, I think it's a fitting one because uh, Delanda is trying to, first of all, kind of bridge the continental and analytic uh, philosophical traditions of the 20th century by uh, taking Deleuze from continental philosophy and uh, explaining it in terms of more analytical concepts that are uh, tied to contemporary scientific theories. And while there's certainly a lot of uh, you know, aspects of uh, these things worth critiquing, I think it's still you know a good starting point. Um, that is a productive one. And um, yeah, so it's also kind of bridging between science and philosophy and also thought it was a clever way to call in uh, Deleuze's philosophy of difference and maybe uh, see how we're trying to understand and perhaps even think difference in itself, uh, even if we fail. So. Um, to get things going, I wanted to, first of all, explain what sort of uh, discussion I want this to be. I want it to be basically accessible at uh, as many different levels as possible. I want people who are new to either Deleuze or Delanda to be able to uh, get something out of it. I want people who are familiar with Deleuze or familiar with contemporary science to be able to see uh, the intersections and interactions of these ideas and hopefully learn something from that. And uh, you know, I'm also hopeful that maybe we can really think about this and, you know, if we speculate, we might come up with some new ideas of our own uh, and we might be able to do things with that. So with that said, um, does everybody see the uh, screen share I've got of the, um, oh, I've got that document up there now. Here's the uh, actual book. So um, we had kind of intended to talk about the introduction last week after the discussion of. Sorry, articles. it may just be me, but uh, what I see on the screen is very, uh, it's unreadable. Anybody else having that problem? Yes. Okay, let me... It looks like uh, a Klingon language, maybe. <laughs> but as we are setting this, um, I will try to... Is that give different. It's still loading. It looks like it's, it's unzoomed, or you need like a zoom in to make it clearer. Oh, I see. I think it's the stream because it's like... Oh, never mind, that works. That oh. works, yes. Much better. Cool. So what I was saying is that um, 
I have actually worked into direct application of uh, Deleuze's thought into disability and the relation of body to space. So as we go, um, they talk about mathematics more and, you know, the, the Euclidean space and the forms and stuff. And I will give examples to real life situation that could be applied. So as we go, I will try to like get into the subject with uh, my own work. So awesome. That'd be great. Um, so yeah, I think, you know, the way that I Doug, real quick, to could you zoom yeah. in more? Oh yeah. Sorry. Uh, I think I need to just actually, here we go. Take that. Um, is this going to keep it on the Delano book now? That's perfect. Cool. Okay. Um, so yeah, we didn't get to talk about the introduction, um, but he's kind of just explaining what he's trying to do. This uh, taking Deleuze's realist ontology, um, and uh, interpreting this in uh, terms that uh, you can communicate in uh, terms of this modern science of dynamical processes, um, nonlinear dynamics, chaos, symmetry breaking, all the stuff we'll get into. Um, and uh, yeah, it's a pretty simple book. It's just four chapters. The first one uh, that we'll go over today kind of introduces these formal mathematical ideas that are trying to uh, get us to think about things differently than we might have thought about them before. We don't want to think in terms of the essences of things. We don't want to think about what their static properties are and uh, try to classify them by these eternal forms that kind of live above and outside of everything. But we want to consider things imminently and uh, as part of a process of their own genesis and some sort of uh, natural self-differentiating. Uh, we're looking for a word other than process here, but yeah, uh, process again. Um, so uh, before we jump in, does anybody have questions lingering from uh, the past readings? Aren't people supposed to be all unmuted in this channel? They should all have the ability to unmute themselves. All right, perfect. If you don't have that ability, let one of the admins or mods know. Um, so I, I guess I'd, I'd like to say a few words um, before we get into the details. Um, I actually think that uh, you know, we're reading anti-Oedipus, so we're in the middle of anti-Oedipus. Um, but um, uh, Delanda is focusing on difference and repetition. Right. So one of the interesting things is to see how what he says about the, the mathematics and the uh, systems theory applies to anti uh, to anti-Oedipus as well. So that's one bridge that we ought to try to build. Mm -hmm. And um, um, 
Then another thing is that uh, something I've said before, but I just mentioned it again, which is that, um, you know, Zizek is able to use Lacanian theory very effectively to uh, critique um, cinema and literature and all kinds of things uh, in culture. And there doesn't seem to be anything like that for Deleuze's work that I've run into. Um, but, um, but, but what there is like that is Delanda's interpretation of Deleuze. In other words, the, the, the place where Deleuze has been, uh, where it's been able to elucidate um, uh, things is, is in math and is in complex systems theory and stuff like that. So, uh, in a sense, I think that this uh, reading of Delanda is uh, is very important because this is the application that has been uh, made of Deleuze's thought, and uh, and so and then that helps us understand that application to uh, complex systems theory uh, and complexity theory um, is you know what helps us to understand what. Uh, Deleuze's philosophy through its application. Um, yeah, I definitely agree. I think, uh, you know, for me reading this with my background of more, you know, orthodox math and physics education, it's definitely very thought provoking. And uh, yeah, so I think that's definitely something we'll get to explore. Um, and, and I think on this, if we, um, this kind of text, if you understand the concepts and you understand the basic structure of the thought because he shows the ontology behind Deleuze's thought. So if you can actually grasp this ontology, you can apply it to different fields. Um, personally, I didn't read that um, that text before. That's my first time. But everything that is in there, I can relate to the way that I express it into my dissertation. It's expressed into a different vocabulary. But all the ideas are there and everything makes sense with what I do. So like if you're into psychology or sociology, you know, geography, whatever, uh, you can apply those if you understand just the basic diagram of the ontology. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and the, th the thing is that uh, should be taken into account here is that I don't think this is an extrinsic, extrinsic interpretation. I think that, that, Deleuze was well aware of the mathematics and was striving to express the kinds of things that Deleuze, that Delanda is saying. Uh, and so, you know, um, in Deleuze's work, he doesn't go into those things. And a lot of those things were developed after he wrote. So he was like a, a progenitor or pathfinder or something like that for the, these ways of thinking. But the way that science has gone it's it's basically taken up a lot of the themes that 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 he tried to develop philosophically and has found ways to express that in more kind of like uh, quasi scientific ways mm -hmm. so yeah um one thing i want to get clear from the start is that you know even though i have been studying this sort of stuff from the physics perspective for almost a decade now. Uh, I don't want to set myself up as an expert here. I think uh, 
it's my goal to kind of present this as an open dialogue and, you know, uh, yeah, I'm going to be always checking that other people, what other people think about my own thoughts. And I think that, you know, there's no answers here that we can't question. I think we should always be, uh, really trying to be very, um, open and Socratic about, uh, our ideas here. And as we start, uh, we have a chat, so you can, if you don't, if you're not at ease with talking, you can actually type your questions. And I think Jack of Hearts has already has a question. What does it mean to say that science and other disciplines are using a static in a sense based ontology? So we can go with all those qu those questions and answer them as we go. So if you want to yeah. give a basic uh, answer to this, um, yeah, that's a good starting point. Um, I think there's a sense in which science both does and doesn't use a, a static ontology. I think, you know, there's kind of the uh, overall informal methodology of science where we say, oh, well, we change our ideas as we learn new things. And that's not really static, but it, I think it has more to do at the conceptual level. And uh, that affects how we mathematically formalize things and how we think about them. Uh, we're still trying to classify things by their essences, by um, still using the same ideas of, uh, you know, what the what is the property of the thing right now, and you know, then that gets this separation between um, the form and its content, and uh, that's the sort of abstraction that Deleuze is going to try to avoid. Uh, uh, he's going to try to make things imminent and uh, proceeding from um, a common starting point and differentiating into all the things that we want to talk about. Uh, <clears throat> you know, this focus on um, anti-essence, um, I mean, it's certainly a theme in in uh, Deleuze, but um, you know the way that theme gets expressed mostly is the kind of like uh, uh, non-representationalism. Mm -hmm. In other words, he's he's um, indifference and repetition. He's trying to lay the basis for a non-representational approach to things, and. Uh, one of the things which is interesting is that um, it just so happened last time I read Difference and Repetition, I had read Kassira, the third volume of uh, his uh, Philosophy of Symbolic Forms, which is about non-representationalism, too. And, um, and what I noticed was that the, in the last third of Difference and Repetition, basically uh, Deleuze was um, uh, using the basic argument of Kassira, but without mentioning Kassira. And so... Um, yeah, there's definitely like uh, the way that um, once we get into talking about multiplicities and the way Delana describes them um, as obscure, right? I think that is getting at this non-representationalism. Um, yeah. And, so, um, so I, I, I just like uh, to hold mention. On, hold on, Ken. Uh, Jack just sure. had a follow-up question on the uh, first question. Uh, so, 
the question is, so we would see something like a bird defined through an essence of traits. And yeah, the way that would work would be that like, what is the concept of a bird? How do we define that? We would say, well, it's sort of this, and this is what Deleuze doesn't like about uh, this essentialist version of things is that it's kind of this unity of um, all the different things that we want to consider as possibly birds and all the different attributes they have uh, and kind of narrowing it down to uh, a final closed collection of things that we call birds that all share the same attributes that we call the bird attributes. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, right. And I think we can see even something like that popping up in science, right? Which is kind of what Deleuze is going to try and move us away from, right? Yeah, and I think this is really tricky. And I think this is the uh, yeah sort of non-representational aspect that we haven't gotten to yet in the first chapter. As far as I can tell that he's kind of saying, all right, in the second chapter, we're going to see how this stuff pulls together into this virtual space uh, where is going to be the real starting point for Deleuze's uh, philosophy. Right now, we're kind of just getting the I ideas, notions, and conceptual groundwork in. So I'd just like to mention a little bit about what Kassira says, because I think that this the approach to non-representation... Yeah, hey, can, 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 yeah. can we like hold off on too many references right now? Let's get into, the, like, start with the text, right? I want So the thing is, I want to use the text as, like, the material for the Socratic dialogue, and I think that's... Uh, let's stick with this text for now. Um, okay, go ahead. Yeah. Um, I mean, so I think we want to start with multiplicity, right? This is the kind of, this is the concept that he's talking about on the first page. So um, that was definitely something that I had a little trouble understanding at first because I'm so tied down to the mathematical notion of manifold, Um and it's something slightly different from that. Did anybody else kind of pick up on what the key differences are? Well, manifold allows for sort of recognizing um, a potentiality of different, shall we say, dimensions, right? Um, yeah. Yeah, so that's one thing is that uh, we started with the notion of like Euclidean geometry, uh, 2D or 3D, very flat space, and those were the only notions of quote-unquote space uh, or spaces. And um, I think uh, Delanda talks about how Gauss and Riemann uh, invented these notions of uh, first, and Lobachevsky, the, so there's the non-Euclidean spaces where um, the difference is that this fifth postulate of Euclid's, the parallel postulate, uh, doesn't hold because you're, for instance, you can imagine this geometry as being, you know, on a sphere which is embedded in a higher dimensional space. And so you can see how, oh, the parallel lines there, uh, you know, you take one line going uh, straight north and the other line going straight west along a sphere. Um, no, sorry, I'm talking about parallel lines. The point is that, like, for instance, uh, latitude and longitudinal, no, different latitude or longitudinal lines start out pal parallel to each other. Um, which one am I talking about? Which ones go up and down? Longitude. 
longitude lines are parallel to each other, except at the poles, they intersect. So that's the difference between curved and flat geometry. Um, and anyway, so that's, yeah, that's part of, uh, so you've got more dimensions. We're just seeing space can have any number of dimensions. And even if we can't visualize it the same way that we can with 2D or 3D space, this is still some sort of well-defined space we want to talk about. Um, and uh, I know, Jack, you pointed this out uh, earlier, what the other big um, important fact about manifolds is. Yeah, it also allows for potentiality, right? Because um, if you define something as a, an n-gon, right, that means it could have, um, that means you're recognizing the possibility of different sides and um, without trying to, to nail it down immediately. Um, right. And um, well, what I was trying to get at, which uh, you, had, you had mentioned to me before, was that uh, they're intrinsically defined spaces, right? We don't need to consider the sphere embedded in the larger space. We can consider the surface of the sphere as its own space. Um, yeah, the transcendental versus the imminent, right? Instead of defining something outside of itself, we're looking at the thing um, as it is, I think is the way to mm -hmm. say it. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I could talk a little bit more about manifolds if anybody wants, but I really want to get at the differences between manifolds and multiplicities. So where do we start seeing that, and uh, how does that get fleshed out? Well, he starts at page five at the beginning if, to make the difference between the multiplicity and the manifold, if you want to move to that. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, so... If you want to put the text to also, yeah. Oh, yeah. Page five, cool. If you want to put the text into the uh, the live stream. Yeah. Good. So. Now, where did I go? So. Um, yeah. This paragraph pretty much lays out. Uh, some of the key differences. Um, so yeah, we start with this manifold, which is a space with, could have any number of dimensions. Um, and it's uh, an intrinsically defined space. It's not, uh, and so one thing that means is uh, to define something intrinsically means you want to look at, uh, you know, start at one point straight from inside the space and think about which directions you can move in from there and uh you know that's going to keep you inside of the space the trick is that when you want to try to label uh the entire space with a set of coordinates the way that you could for um flat euclidean space you generally can't so that's actually a kind of key thing about how they avoid this extrinsically defined unity um you've got different patches that you relate to each other via transition functions, right? You could have 
one disc covering the top half of a sphere and one disc covering the bottom half of the sphere, and you have to define functions how to glue them together at the equator. Well, um, so you it's, it's actually it's actually an interesting phenomenon for manifolds that you can always put them in some Euclidean space. Right, you can always embed them in the higher space, uh, mm -hmm. but the useful notion here is that you don't need to. Um, and yeah, so this is just trying to get us to start thinking away from that extrinsic sort of geometry uh, kind of static essential view of things. Um, so yeah, he's using this idea from manifolds that uh, it, there's not this overarching organization. Um, there's this internal and imminent uh, connection between things. And um, and I think it's a little bit further on. Oops. Can I ask a question? Yeah, of course. Uh, while we're on page five, what do you guys make of um, uh, the author's statement, a Deleuzian multiplicity takes as its first defining feature these two traits of a manifold, its variable number of dimensions, and more importantly, the absence of a supplementary higher dimension imposing an intrinsic coordination and hence an intrinsically defined unity. So the way I interpret this is that he's talking about um, when uh, a manifold describes something, and when you're inside of a manifold, you have a space of potential directions to move in, which is how a manifold is defined, which is to say a manifold is locally isomorphic to Euclidean space. So if you're inside a manifold, you have some number of directions you can move in. But the point being, if you're on a sphere, as Doug mentioned, you can, you can choose you can have two people at different points on a manifold who choose the same direction and arrive at the same place, even though they started at different places. So you 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 can talk about local phenomena. Um, if you talk about local phenomena too much, like in the sphere example, you arrive at um, confusing global phenomena, right? I think I see. So you're saying you can confuse the the inside for the outside and vice versa. Well. The point of saying that you can't, the point of saying that you don't have to consider a manifold as embedded in some Euclidean space is precisely to say that there is no outside of the manifold. Because if you say there is an outside of the manifold, then you've already put it in some side, some larger space, right? So, so it would technically be incorrect to think of a sphere as like a globe embedded in three-dimensional Euclidean space because the way you define them is purely from the inside, you know. I think I can also help you understand this in terms of um, basically that uh, there's extrinsic and intrinsic curvature. So you can like start with a flat piece of paper and you can just bend it in three-dimensional space and that's extrinsic curvature. Um, but the difference is that you can unbend it. There's a topological uh, um, equivalence between the flat and the curved piece of paper embedded in 3D space, but the surface of a sphere rather has extrin or sorry intrinsic curvature, 
um, and there's no way to topologically um, deform that shape and remove the curvature. Remove the qualitative presence of curvature. I think I see what you guys are saying. You've got to look at the, not just the surface of what the thing is, but also kind of what's inside of it to understand it. Um, yeah, and what's inside of it here are the like geometric relations between the points. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and the other thing, though, that you brought up is the variable number of dimensions. And honestly, I don't really know why that's so important. Perhaps it's just like you don't want to assume a particular number no, at you a time. Do. A manifold, you have to pick a particular n. Right. So it's a variable, though. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you, I, you, can, you can have any number of... Uh, you can have it be locally isomorphic to any particular you could in space. But it has to be the same one yeah. throughout the manifold. I mean, I think, I guess, it's like just as, um, you know, like one of the examples that Delanda gives as a uh, physical system is the bicycle. And, and so that's got uh, five different, um, like, points that you, uh, five different parameters that he describes, like the uh, orientation of the handlebars and the wheels and the pedals. And so there's all these, there's... Uh, the five different parameters that you have, but there's also the rates at which those parameters are changing. So you've actually got 10 different variables or degrees of freedom you want to talk about. And so you need to consider a, a higher dimensional space. So I think that's why. Yeah. And I think, I think the whole point with manifolds yeah. having emergent global properties is that like, if you turn the handlebars all the way around and then you try to pedal, nothing's going to happen. Right. So mm -hmm. that is to say, that is to say that like, um, like you can make local decisions in these dimensions that end up, uh, end up affecting each other. Yeah. Um, another good example of that is like the um, rather idealized case of some sort of uh, ball that rolls along a surface without slipping at all. Um, it turns out that like the order of ways you roll it matters there. And um, so, like, yeah, you sometimes can't get back to the point you started at. Like you're saying, sometimes you can turn it so far you can't turn the wheel so far you can't move the bike anymore. Um, there's sometimes yeah, dead ends that, in your yeah, possibilities. Yeah, the point being that, like, the dimensions collide. Like, yeah. a, if, if you know what a vector space is, the point is that the dimensions are um, orthogonal and then they never um, they can never affect each other. But in a manifold, the dimensions collide. Yeah. Um, I'll be honest, I don't know like that formal differential geometry super well. Uh, my kind of. Yeah, and I'm not sure how much of it either of the authors intend. Yeah, my kind of notion is that you've got these local coordinate patches of the surface or space or hyperspace. Yeah, vector bundles. And you, as soon as you kind of move from one to the other, you have to just be willing to say, my you know, description of this object could completely change. Right, exactly. I mean, the the, the, the idea there is that like um, like a, if you have a Klein bottle, you can think in you can think of it in three dimensional space. And if you look at if you look at the surface close up enough, you can attach a two dimensional vector space called a vector bundle. But you can't make this 
uh, you can't make this smooth around the whole space. So you can you can look at um, low dimensional phenomena, but like you have to you have to think about more things if you want to look at global phenomena. I'll buy that, and that brings us back to the topic of potentiality, right? Where Deleuze writes, uh, multiplicity must not designate a combination of the many and the one, but rather an organization belonging to the many as such, which has no need whatsoever of unity in order to form a system, which I think is what you guys are describing. Yeah. So, like, a manifold being locally isomorphic to a Euclidean space means you can attach a vector bundle to any point on the manifold. And so I think his point here is that that particular vector bundle is the space of possibilities. Without relying on a unifying essentiality. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the way I take it is we kind of start from, all right, we've got one given possibility. What are the other possibilities we can imagine getting it? It getting to from there and what are the ones that it actually has the potential to achieve mm -hmm. um so yeah this is the important connection between the mathematics and the uh reality here is that we are imagining um these multiplicities to be representing the space of possible states or possible configurations um of some sort of physical system i would especially with uh um rogers uh background coming in here i want to broaden that to sort of socio-physical systems mm -hmm. and um so yeah basically the, there's this nice step that Delana describes where you say, all right, we've got this 10-dimensional system of the bike, uh, and now we're going to say, instead of having this complicated shape of a bike that we know and can see in three-dimensional space, we're going to uh, simplify our representation of the bicycle down to a single point, but it's now a point in a more complex space. This is 10-dimensional space of the handlebar, wheel, pedal, parameters, and their rates. So what do people think about that step of uh, shifting the description? Do you think that is going to be a real equivalence? Are we losing information? Are we adding unnecessary information? I'm not sure why he separates position and momentum. Like, if you know uh, one, you can find the other. Uh, well, so classically, that's true. Quantum mechanically, that isn't. Um, but the way that it, what it comes down to is, like, basically, what are the um, dynamical rules we're going to be considering and what are the parameters of the system that those rules depend on? Right, but, you can't we, but you can't alter the momentum or the position without changing the other. So in quantum mechanics, you can only measure one at a time, and the other well, yeah, is but you determined. Can't. But if you alter one, you've affected the other. So you don't really have 10 degrees of freedom, I think. Um, so the way that it works classically is basically that you can 
you know, be at one point and moving in any given direction from that point. So you do have to consider all the different momenta at that point, right? That's the, as you were saying, the, um, the fiber bundle, right? You've got the, the mm-hmm. space of the, the directions of motion uh, as parameters, and that's kind of living over the space of points of uh, the uh, system itself. And um, I don't want to get too into the weeds on all this more technical stuff, though, because uh, I don't think it's totally essential to understand uh, mm. the philosophy here. Um, I can say that I am personally uh, inclined to say that that simplification step would somehow reduce our. Uh, amount of information about the system we have to handle and uh, you know use for our thinking. Um, but I don't have a good justification for that. It's kind of just intuition. Could you repeat that? Um, yeah, I'm kind of just speculating that, like, you know, there's definitely has been a very productive sort of simplification in terms of, uh, you know, physics and other sciences of idealizing some real complicated system like a bicycle and all of its, you know, real structure in 3D space and simplifying the object into a single point, but now having that point live in the more complex space of this 10-dimensional space to describe um, all the different uh, possible parameters and rates of parameters or positions and momentums. Yeah, because the point becomes a manifold, right? Or rather the point is a manifold. If I'm well, the, the point the point is the the manifold is the collection of all the points inside the manifold. So each each like so like a manifold is like a circle or a sphere or a line where at each point inside of the manifold, you can yeah. move in a number of directions. And, and each, all the points each together single are point is a single possibility. So we're saying each possibility, which really represents a bike, you know, moving and in some configuration of the handlebars and all that, that yeah. whole picture is now just a point. That possibility yeah. is yeah. being... I mean, the way I'm thinking of it is... Like, point it to a point. The way I'm thinking of it is like... If I'm standing in a field, then wherever I'm standing, I can move in two directions, which means this corresponds to just regular two-dimensional space. So at any point, I have two dimensions of possibility space. Right. Yeah. So if we want to bring back, bring all of this back to an anthropological reading, um, you know, it it it, it gives. It simplifies a lot also, but uh, it gives like real life application. Um, Tim Ingold, for example, is describing life as lines. So basically lives are manifolds. And, um, you know, to live a life, you need to have a body. You're not a pure spirit. So you have your body with all the parts, you know, that are working in certain directions. You know, the leg can, you know, is the same thing as a bicycle. Your body is, you know, a bunch of mechanical parts that are all joined together with all their possibilities and then you become this manifold 
of all those parts. If you can correct me if I'm wrong as I go, because I'm doing some interpretation of what you said. Well, sounds good so far. So, but also, you are not a body into an into the void. You're always into a space. So basically, you're sitting. So you, as a manifold, are um, assembling yourself with a chair, for example. And a chair is a manifold of different parts as well. And then when you when you start thinking about this into a form of assemblage, into um, what you guys call Russian dolls, I think. So mm -hmm. a manifold would always inscribe itself into another manifold. So if you get into a full ecological understanding of the body and space, you can see how all of these elements um, are being composed, but they also compose the bigger space in which they are. So it's you, you, you can have direct application into everyday movement of a body uh, with this kind of theory. And it it seems obscure, but like when you start thinking about it into like real life terms everything becomes a little bit clearer i don't know if that yeah no i really like what you're saying for instance like what you said about uh, us using the chair to assemble our bodies into a sitting configuration right there's an actual assemblage going on you are letting yourself fall into the chair and letting it you know exert a force on you and uh yeah i think you're right there's a real assembly i'm going trying on. to think of what happens to the manifold so um, I think there's a sort of, yeah, very open question about that for me as well. <laughs> what, what do you mean? What does happen to the man? Okay, so the body or the one in the chair? Or well, I mean, okay, so like, holds both. I mean, so like, there's a manifold that corresponds to the person and the manifold that corresponds, like, like, I think the simplest example is like two different people walking around in a field. If they start 10 feet apart, then like they could choose to walk towards each other, but they can't. But then they collide. So the manifolds have the manifolds like touch each other in a particular way. Yeah. So I think this is what gets into uh, the notion of singularities, which are sort of um, special points or special uh, curves or cycles. Um, in the state space uh, that sort of capture the um, typical behavior, right? The example, first example is given of an attractor. This is the this is the equilibrium point that uh, you know if you start at any other um, possible state of the system that's in the so-called basin of attraction, it's going to gradually approach, get closer and closer, infinitesimally closer to uh, the equilibrium point, and usually in the um, you know, mathematical formalization of things that we use nowadays. Uh, it, you know, formally takes an infinite amount of time for the system to approach equilibrium. And uh, I think the way that that can be used here is to say that, yeah, okay, that doesn't really ever approach equilibrium. What happens is uh, some new possibility has to emerge, right? There has to be this interaction between the bodies, and we're going to go off in an entirely different direction when that happens. Right when they collide and they change each other, right? You know, if it's two jousters on horses riding towards each other, well, there's a very big qualitative change when one's lance goes through the through the other. So I think I would into the same page. There's um, the end of this paragraph. 
um as with maybe we could read this and you know like um try to discuss mm -hmm. as with any model yeah do you want to read that yeah um yes exactly but like just start with the the part before that you know because it's um, but the way these property change that is it captures a process as any model there is a trade-off here we exchange the complexity of the objects changes of state for the complexity of the modeling space in other words an object instantaneous state no matter how complex becomes a single point a great simplification but the space in which the object state is embedded becomes more complex e.g the three-dimensional space of the bicycle becomes a 10-dimensional state space. Right, right. So, um... so if, if we start with senses, you know, the bicycle would be just a bicycle, you know, with the uh, all the properties and stuff. But if we, the, the trade-off is, um, is to understand the changes within the bicycle, and then it, we, we cannot just take it as an object. We take it as a dynamic form or a dynamic identity with processes within that keep changing. So we have a mm -hmm. completely different understanding of uh, the state of the bike as we exactly. approach it in that manner. Here's maybe another good example uh, to help us think about this is uh, if you take like two um, identical atoms, like two hydrogen atoms, you've got... Uh, just each one is a proton at the nucleus and an electron orbiting it at, uh, you know, it's got some spherical probability distribution uh, for real to detect this electron. And um, so each one on its own, when you uh, calculate the total charge distribution from far away, it looks like nothing, right? The positive and the negative cancel out. But when you bring two of them close to each other, uh, they exert forces on each other. And um, for instance, the electrons of the two hydrogen atoms are slightly closer to each other. And since those are the same sort of charge, they're going to repel each other. And so then uh, the electron of each atom is shifted away from its equilibrium position, uh, perfectly centered on the nucleus. And instead, you get a separation between the positive and the negative charge centers. You get these dipole moments um, and so, yeah, there's this qualitative, qualitative change inside of the atom itself just due to bringing the two of them uh, into each other's presence. Right. Uh, just a little point, uh, because it, it can seem confusing from the outside, but since Deleuze is proposing a whole ontology of what is the real, for example, um, there shouldn't be a difference between a physical body like a human body and the, the, the structure of the atom so basically right. it would be the same kind of template so that's why we're going from you know a physics point of view to a more anthropological or biological or whatever so it, it shouldn't the model shouldn't be changing that much so i just want to clarify that so we can all follow and not wonder why we're going from like yeah one one uh, one scale to another and I think uh, just to kind of maybe speculate a little bit about where I think this is going is that uh, eventually, right, the, this kind of step of simplifying the real things to a point, uh, we're going to say that that is um, 
it's kind of a black box. It's not really just a point. It's just something that we don't know what it is. And, and I think that that is going to be kind of how we get around this, like, oh, there's an essence inside of there. Um, but that's just my speculation right now. I think I see what you're saying. Um, would I be right, too, that in, in the example of the bicycle, we also understand the bicycle in relation to the different things that are uh, related to it, right? Um, yeah, we can. I mean, uh, can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, I'm trying to, um, to understand the example of the bicycle better. So, like, when we say the bicycle is not just, um, you know, the, the thing we perceive with our eyes, right? There's all these different things interacting with it. Um, I think that's what I'm hearing, uh, uh, Roger and you say, right? Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Cause mm -hmm. there, there's conditions of actualization as well. So, you know, if we think of the bicycle as some abstract idea, uh, we can, you know, speculate on a lot, a lot of the things it can do, but take a bike, ride it onto a street. Uh, now you can see like how, um, the processes within the bike of like all the little parts shifting, the crank, the pedals and everything, they all are related to its relation to an exterior um, exterior space, which is pretty material. So this the, the bike always assembles itself to what it encounters. So basically, like if you go up a hill, uh, the force that is needed to rotate the wheels is going to be different. And but it also depends on the gear you're in, the moment you shifted everything. So um, to understand the processes within the bike, you need to understand how it happens and how it occurs only in relation to um, the the material uh, field in, what, in which it is. Um, also, I think it will talk about gravity a little bit uh, further, but I think to actually take account of the external forces to uh, the entity that we're trying to describe is always something that we need to consider. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that answers anything. I think so. It sounds like you're saying there's potentialities um, interacting with uh, conditions, and that's kind of limiting things down to what's happening, right? So, like, the bicycle has the potentiality to do these things, and when you're riding it, um, and moving the handlebars, right? Therefore, the bicycle is also doing things in relation to that and the things that are also in interrelated to it. I th yeah. think that's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah, so, it, there's a virtual space for the bicycle. There's also a virtual space for the environment, and there's a virtual space for the rider, which is the same virtual space, but, you know, it, it, it connects itself differently. Um Depending on the virtual space of all of those together, you know, all the new possibilities that emerge when these things can interact. Yes. So basically, you know, you take a bike, you take a shit bike and you put uh, a commuter on it or a professional cyclist. It, the bike's not going to perform the same way. It has the same virtual qualities, but the, it through this actualization into the connection with the rider, uh, it's going to give different results or outputs. So, but it's the same bike. And that's what you mean by saying different assemblages, right? A, a uh, Lance Armstrong assemblage is different than a um, a Roger Normandin uh, assemblage, right? Exactly, yeah. 
but they're different because of their different morphogenetic processes, not because of some, you know, essential static qualities inside of them. Yes, because they've been they've been uh, going through processes that were different, also. So basically, you cannot never take a thing as it is without taking account the processes that constructed or formed the thing. Yeah, I think this is actually very relatable to the first chapter of Antiedipus here, right? I think so too. Could you could you say a little bit more on the connection you're making? Yeah, I mean, so what we're talking about are uh, processes that uh, take some given thing and form it into something else. But like, what is that given thing? It's just something else that was the result of some other process. So there's these flows of things in their uh, genetic processes and how they interact and uh, produce new things and um, produce their own behaviors. Um, I think it's just a nice physical uh, connection to the machinic picture in Antiedipus also. Yeah, it reminds me of chapter two when he talks about, or rather uh, they talk about you being plugged into a machine and your ego transferring throughout it. So, right, like you have the potentiality to consider yourself as a father and as a father in that larger group fantasy sense. But you can also consider yourself as a, like, uh, an army guy. And then that floods into a different group fantasy, right? Right. Interesting. To me, you know, the way you just phrased that remind me of sorts of, uh, you know, theories of extended mind, right? That our uh, notepads and our computers are actually parts of our minds, that our ego, ego is actually kind of uh, going into those because we don't have this essence inside of us that defines the ego. The ego is defined through the processes and the you know physical things we inhabit. Yeah, I used to think profiles were an alter ego, but in light of what you're saying, I, I, I've begun to, I don't know if it's cynical or not, but I've uh, begun to start thinking that your profile is a form of ego, not even an alter ego <laughs> anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a, a nice schizophrenic view is that alter egos are just other parts of our ego. Yeah, and therefore we don't we don't lose the um, the connection that way. It's not the ego uh, going. It's not the ego vis a vis the alter ego. It's just it's just the ego. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, so what do we uh, yeah. from from there on page six? Um, they introduce the concept of the topological. So if you want to go into this, I think it uh, it creates a link between what we're saying and the rest of the text. Yeah, so that's down here in the uh, third paragraph. Um, oh, and I just read this. Besides the great simplification achieved by modeling complex dynamical processes trajectories in a space of possible states, there is the added advantage that mathematicians can bring new resources to bear to the study and solution of the physical problems involved. In particular, topological resources may be used to analyze certain features of these spaces, spaces features which determine recurrent or typical behavior, um, common to many different models, and by extension, common to many physical processes. So the first example of this sort of uh, topological resource we've seen so far is the uh, point singularity, the attractor. Um, 
And so, yeah, that's defining the recurrent behavior of some system that is uh, no matter where you start it from within this particular basin of attraction, a, you know, so literally like imagine a bowl and you start with a marble, release it somewhere near the top of the rim, right? You've got 360 degrees you can possibly choose from, uh, but eventually it's going to come to rest at the bottom of the bowl. There's just one point. And so that is what we mean by topological. It's just shaped like a point. And so other things that are shaped like a point um, are blobs and disks. And so anything that you can kind of shrink down to a point and there's no obstruction preventing you from reaching that final point uh, is topologically equivalent to a point. Um, so then we want to talk about other examples of topological uh, forms that we saw some in the article we talked about last week. Um, and uh, Delanda also uses a sort of progression from different between different topological forms uh, later on here. So I will uh, I will just ask a question so we can no. uh, advance in this. So what would be the difference into thinking the topological form instead of the physical form? Um, so the difference I would say, uh, yeah, the way that I would think about this is that the difference is um, the physical form are kind of all these particular uh, possible trajectories that are have, first of all, could have wildly different starting points um, and, 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 you know, take less so different paths as they approach the final equilibrium state. Um, but those are all the possibilities. And the uh, topological form is really kind of this point or set of points that the physical systems never reach. Uh, they just kind of determine the, the tendencies um, of the uh, dynamics of the systems that are the possible states near those uh, topological forms. Mm -hmm. So to go back into the essence, um, I'm just asking rhetorical questions so we can understand. Um, yeah. So if we talk about essences, can we really reduce the physical form to this, these essences or the real essences, uh, you know, with all with all reserves would be the processes that allow the form to, uh, to stabilize itself. In, um, in the sense that the yeah, reality, I, can, I mean, I can throw, I can throw out an answer, but I'd be interested in hearing if anybody else got an answer to that, because frankly, my answer is just, I don't know yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, I think, you know, to, to position this a little bit better is that, in representational theory, we tend to uh, take the, the 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 state of a thing, the representation of a thing, and like take it as an essence, you know. It, but at the same time, to analyze it from a topological point of view, we would see this form as an emergence of something that is deeper, some uh, like an assemblage of processes that are giving this form. So. We could always ask the question: Where is the essence in this? Is the essence the the final product, 
or is the essence the the, the process that gives it? Um, I'm not sure why we need to answer that question. Isn't the point that we're trying to not talk about instances anymore? Oh yeah, yeah. But like, I'm um, the. So you're trying to just relate the two kind of uh, visions of things, then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. Um, yeah, no, there's definitely a tricky thing for me. Uh, I think my thinking is still evolving on this, but because, um, for example, I... they're giving the example of the soap bubble. What is the what is the reality of the soap bubble? Is it the soap bubble as a round thing, or as an array of processes that gives the bubble? I think it'd be the latter. Yeah, I'm inclined to say that also. I mean, from one perspective, it, to me, like anything that you say is static is really something that is just like changing slower than you can, you know, uh, observe its change. It's just changing on a much slower time scale than your own dynamics are existing. Uh, And and that would be the topological point of view that I think Roger's getting at, right? Yeah, if you if we put it into uh, an anthropological view again, can we reduce the body? Can we reduce the the identity of the body to its form, or you know, do we have to go and see the processes, all the affects, everything that is happening to a body, and everything that the body does as its reality, instead of the identity that we tend to apply to it. Right, because that identity that we tend to apply to it is something uh, outside of the body itself, right? That that's something we're using sort of ideally or categorically to, to define it as opposed to looking at the, the identity as it's moving in this series of systems. Mm -hmm. So it goes back to the previous reading we did about Plato and the simulacrum. You know, it's the ideal form, like the bubble, for example. We see the ideal form and we try to relate the physical bubble to its... Um, right, the idea of the perfectly miracle yeah, exactly. arrangement of the soap molecules versus whatever the reality of that is. Exactly. But in a differentiated or differentiating ontology, the bubble is just a moment. It's a form that is being... Uh, produced by a differentiation within its physical properties. Mm -hmm. So, so I think what's going on here is that, like, yeah, we can kind of see how on this one uh, maybe level of description we're working on, yeah, the singularities or the topological forms are acting kind of like essences. But the whole thing that we're going to get into is that they aren't static; they are themselves developing. They're part of these multiplicities, and these multiplicities are uh, continuously um, embedded into one, one another and uh, undergoing their own differentiation process. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And uh, so this actually kind of ties into what I previously thought about 30 seconds ago was just wild speculation. But um, I think... And I think uh, I'm going to look for the this nice quotation from Deleuze here that Delanda picks out on. Um, yeah, so I'm going to jump ahead to uh, page 14, the uh, extended quote from here. I'll scroll down to this. Uh, 
So this extended quote from Deleuze, multiplicities as Deleuze writes, coexist, but they do so at points on the edges and under glimmerings, which never have the uniformity of a natural light. Um, so this is giving weight to what I thought was my speculation that there's something about, there's going to be something about like kind of boundaries and liminal spaces um, between the different things that, you know, I think might even tie it to like an anti-Oedipus, the body without organs and the socius and the recording process. Uh, the, the, the histories maybe get kind of inscribed in the, in the boundaries here. And um, yeah, that's part of the differentiation process of the whole continuous uh, space of multiplicities itself. That's interesting too then, because we have the idea of a shadow as a zone as opposed to a uniformity of natural light, which I think I can hear in what you're describing, right? The body without organs um, doesn't produce a, an enlightenment, but rather it gives us shadows to look at. Um, can you explain that more? Yeah, so um, how I'm seeing that is like, when you, if you take things to be like, um, you know, the form as being something enlightening, um, then you ignore the imminence of the shadows, right? So with the body without organs that we were just talking about, the recording devices, there's things that are in that shadow or, or um, in relation to that that we have to take in cons into consideration as opposed to like uh, the, the more transcendental view that we're getting above all that. Um, is this like another way of phrasing what you're saying, which is kind of that like the shadow isn't this negative space maybe that we thought it was, but it's actually just, you know, an it, mm, I'm not trying to phrase this, <laughs> but it's not just this negative space. <laughs> Yeah, it, it's something we have to really look at because if if I'm uh, it, it would short, sort of be like with the the Russian nesting dolls, right? Uh, there's more than just a, a doll inside of another doll. There's a space that uh, exists above the doll, and then there's a space where there's another shadow, right? Which is kind of what I think Roger is talking about in terms of having these different multiplicities on top of each other. And each of them give the condition of the arrangement. So you're always conditioned by an exterior. So like when they say, for example, uh, into the quote that you just read, uh, wait, I'm going to find it. They are objectively made and unmade according to the conditions that determine their fluent synthesis. So these conditions are also multiple and they can be within or exterior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um... So actually a weird analogy for this that uh, I came across this weekend. I was watching videos about the uh, Terminator series and the way there's sort of <laughs> time loop there and how they're like, there is this kind of idea that like Sarah and John Connor were like the people. They were the only ones who could have possibly, you know, been a part of this. And like, I think there's something interesting there that there's this kind of... Uh, fusing of the notions of determinism and like 
causal indeterminacy of a time loop that doesn't make sense. <laughs> um, that was the other thing I was going to say. I had something else I was going to say about shadows, but I'm not remembering, so let's move on. Okay, so right after this, I think, is a big important thing, which is, uh, for those of us who have not read Difference and Repetition, the difference between differentiation with a T and differentiation with a C. Uh, um, I don't know if I have a good way of summarizing that off the top of my head. I could try. Does anybody else want to try? So Riley says differentiation is going from actual to virtual, and differentiation is the reverse. Interesting. I didn't pick up on that, but uh, can you go on the voice chat, Riley, or you don't have a mic yet? Um, yeah, so Delanda says he's not going to stick to this uh, typographical uh, differentiation between them, but um, I think it's useful to at least know that it exists and try to understand it. So, um, okay. <clears throat> I mean, from the text here, we've got that progressive unfolding of any multiplicity through broken symmetries is differentiation. Um, whereas progressive specification of the continuous space formed by multiplicities that gives rise to our world of discontinuous spatial structures, differentiation. Um, so does anybody see how differentiation is going from the virtual to the actual? I'm not seeing that in Delanda's interpretation here, but that doesn't mean it's correct. <laughs> yeah, and so there's a connection between um, the mathematical operation of differentiation, um, where we take the we take a function and find its rate of change. Um, and in English, that difference of usage never existed. So that was why, uh, yeah, Paul Patton translated it this way for difference in repetition. Um, Jack, do you want to try to yeah explain what you're thinking? I'll try and walk myself through it. <laughs> I think I'm mm -hmm. catching on, though. It sounds like differentiation is the unfolding of a multiplicity through broken symmetries. So that would be like... incongruencies or, or at least arising incongruencies allowing for the unfolding of a multiplicity as opposed to the I think the more ontological necessity of the space formed by multiplicities giving rise to the world of the spatial structure so it seems to be how things are versus how things are constituted in a spatial structure. Does that make sense? Like like the bicycle and then the bicycle well, as no, we find... neither of them are about how things are. Right? They're both about some sort of process of differentiation. Think. 
Um, I could be wrong. That's my impression. Ooh, Maybe we need to back up here. Do people need uh, to, we kind of skipped over broken symmetries. Do people understand that or do we need to go back and cover that? So Deleuze.nacademic.com. To begin with, he appeals to the mathematical conception of differentiation in order to unlock his understanding of the whole as a unified system, preferring instead to think of open holes that continually produce new directions and connections. Um, I think one way of understanding that is that, like, yes, yeah, so this is why you need to consider the positions and the momentums, because when you uh, differentiate uh, your trajectory and you get the um, velocity function, uh, if you don't know where you start, um, then, uh, yeah, you've kind of broken apart. You need to put in this starting point again to uh, get back to the whole. And I think. Maybe that's what is intended in this first sentence here, but I'm not sure. In effect, what are differentiated are intensities and heterogeneous qualities, and this is what makes the virtual real but not actual. All right, this is confusing me a little bit. I thought that heterogeneous qualities, uh, yeah, was more about differentiation. I'm sort of seeing it like, especially with people bringing in actualization, virtual and reality, but it sort of looks like to me there's a difference between the spatial structure, which is related to differentiation, and differentiation being more of like the actual, um, the, I guess the actuality maybe, as opposed to what the conditions are that could differentiate it. I mean, I think, we, I think we still want to, uh, can you maybe phrase that in dynamical terms somehow, you know? Like differentiation is how the bicycle and everything under those conditions is interacting. Differentiation would be the difference between those conditions and other potential conditions. I think that's how I'm seeing it. Does that how you guys are reading it? I don't know. I've kind of got a formal, you know, more mathematical reading of it, but what I'm struggling with is kind of, yeah, connect that to everything else here. And so, like, my formal reading is that, like, there's the multiplicity, which is kind of like this underlying structure with the the singularities and topological forms uh, that are determining the tendencies of the system and as it differentiates those uh, possible tendencies can change um, whereas the second one progressive specification of the continuous space is like the first part of that doesn't sound too different from progressive fold unfolding of a multiplicity, but 
now it looks like we're talking about multiple multiplicities uh, and how um, their progressive specification somehow gives rise to discontinuous thing. And that is a very complicated and mysterious step to me. Um, I'm, I'm sort of connecting it to like the conditions could change, which is how it differentiates with a seed. But I might be way off in my reading. Okay, no, I think you are... I'm, I'm yeah, really relying on the spatial structure aspect because that to me suggests something. Oh, else. right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That was another question I had was whether we can generalize this to like spatio temporal. Um, I'm not sure about that. Yeah. But I think like if we connect that back to like our bicycle example, right? There's the bicycle as we're riding it down a hill, but we could just as easily, right? That would be the differentiation, I think, but the differentiation would be like if instead of a hill, we had much different conditions that we can kind of contrast and compare with. Is that, is that about right? Or have I made I'm, things more I mean, I think that what I'm trying to get at, I think is that with the differentiation, there's like a real kind of generation of new structures that appear discontinuous from one another, even though they are kind of all uh, imminent within this continuous space of multiplicities. I think we're close to one another, but I lack that kind of uh, language. <laughs> so let's take what I just I just wrote on this uh, from uh, it's Adrian Parr that says that. For Deleuze, the actualized differences of differentiation with a C do not enjoy a privileged point of view over the differences making up the flow of differentiation. Nor is differentiation with a C a process that unifies heterogeneous qualities. Rather, it simply affirms those qualities, these qualities and intensities without completely halting the flow in its tracks. So it affirms these qualities and intensity that are found into the virtual differentiation with a T without outing the flow so basically you're riding a bike like let's take the bike example uh the bike has all those potentials of usage and you know what it can do but into a hill it actually it, it affirms certain um certain qualities and intensities going back up the hill it will affirm other qualities and other intensities or like taking a turn or whatever so i think those are just two moments the moment of potential and the moment of actualization. So one actualization cannot always encompass the reality of both the virtual and the actual. So the bike is something that turns, but also something that could do something else. I don't know if that, that's clear because you never, um, I don't know how to say this in English, but you never exhaust all the potential into an action. The, the object or the being or the thing always as an array of other potentials that are not being actualized in that moment. So you cannot reduce the object, the being, or the thing to what it does at a particular moment. And my oh, I see. So that's why we're going back from the virtual to the reals, because we're taking... Uh, no, no, I lost myself, sorry. 
Am I correct to say then that in that moment is the differentiation, but in this, in more of the, if we look at the structurality of it all, there is the differentiality. What do you mean by differentiality? Uh, so if I understand right, when we're riding the bike and all the potentiality of the bike, there's the differentiality, but in terms of like the structurality of it, um, or like the conditions and everything that make that are making all of this um, possible, and that rely and, and that sort of are intimate with one another, there would be the differentiality because you could have different conditions, or you could change the conditions, right? Yeah. Is that right? Like if maybe if we use like a social example, you have the person as they they could understand themselves in, in a given society, and how that's all going on. But then alternatively, if you change the structure of society um, or you recognize that the structure could change, you, you allow for a dif differentiation. Is that right? Okay, yeah. Um, so it's, it's the usage of structure that I wasn't sure, but like structure would be the, the ecology of the thing. So uh, it's something as dynamic because when you say structure, you, you refer to something that is you know, not, not moving as a processual kind of thing. But I think, yeah, I think you're right. It's the same thing with disability. That's what I work on. And we, we say that a person is never disabled. It's the environment that disables the person. So the person has all these potentials, but an environment that does not allow uh, mobility, for example, or, you know, understanding in class uh, would limit the actualization or the expression of those potentials. So disability is created by uh, an environment that blocks this expression and or, or the affirmation of qualities or intensities, just to put it back into the text. If you get into an inclusive class or an inclusive uh, environment, which is accessible, the potentiality of the person will actualize themselves into a different manner, allowing different results, different outcomes. Yeah, and that's where we see the differentiality as I'm as I'm reading the text. Yeah. So basically the person becomes something else depending on the context in which she finds uh how do you say this is a person feminine in English or how do you use a the person is a gender neutral for English. So you say they, right? Yeah. Okay, so the person find themselves into uh the, 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 and in two different settings, they become something else. Yeah, so I think I'm understanding this now. So like the differentiation going from the actual to virtual is like saying, all right, we've got this person in, you say they live on the first floor. They could live in the basement. They could live on the second floor. Uh, you know, those are the potentialities. But how do you actually actualize those potentialities? You have to differentiate things. You have to put in ramps or elevators or things like that. Does that make sense? Uh, yes, but you, you know, like uh, you, when you're saying like different uh, different levels, you are a person that lives on the second floor or you are a person that lives on the first floor. You are a person that can go on the second floor or cannot go on the second floor. Right. Yeah. So to 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 define uh, to define a body would be to define the body what it can do and what it cannot do. So a person with disability, for example, if we try to define the person, this goes back to the beginning of the text. We cannot define the person by the physical properties of their bodies. We cannot say, you know, this person is 
reduced to a missing limb or you know an impaired organ it's what the person can do in their environment that uh, can be used as a definition mm -hmm. and and that's the differentiation right um well, the differentiation would be the actualization of the virtual with the C. I, I, I mean with the T. I see the T as being like sort of the materiality of it, but I'm probably I'm probably minimalizing it, but I see it as like it, it's the person who has to deal with the, dis the disabilities, right, relative to a given structure and how they're, they're coping with like the potentialities alongside that. Which would be the yeah, difference? Yeah, like starting yeah. from what the actual real thing is, and kind of from there seeing what all the unrealized and virtual potentialities are, and how that's a yeah. sort of space of possibilities that now we can think about how to actually get them from one point to another within that space, and it's a space that includes all these capacities and yeah, all these other things, not just like pure uh, physical things yeah. like. So, so, so if we want to make something easy, T is what is in reserve, and C is what is being possible. Yes, but possible with respect to structural change, right? For structural, yeah, well, C possible in reserve to T, and the possible the possibility of actualization of the T. So I think regarding structure, this actually might tie into the question that I was about to ask, which is I'm a little hung up on this word affirms. Does that does that involve any sort of like recording, witnessing, interaction? Is it passive? Does it change the thing that it affirms? Well, the affirming is always linked to the expression. So Deleuze always used the term expression because you express something from the virtual into the actual. And so, but expression is not discourse. Mm -hmm. So, expression is more kind of like uh, the sign, right? Yeah, but it's it's bigger than the sign, you know. It's uh, okay. it's also like physical, social, and discursive. Huh. Yeah, because you're saying it's not how we talk about or what we're talking about. Right? Like we're talking at a more I don't want to say physical level, but topological level, right? As opposed to like trying to figure out what the signs we're using are. Yeah. Um, I, I gave this example the other day. Um, you know, when you look at a sound, um, a sound graphic, you know, it's like a landscape that keeps moving depending on which note is being struck. And so you... But but the topological uh, plane is like that. So it's some stuff is being expressed into that uh, that matrix, and um, yeah, I don't I, I I I don't know. Do you do you know what I'm referring about? Yeah. Okay, so this this expression would be the expression of an intensity or the affirmation into the actual of a virtual. Uh, uh, potential right with respect to that structurality yes i think we have a different understanding of structure and structurality but yes 
I think we do too, but it sounds like we kind of understand how each other's using it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's the same as a bubble, you know? It goes back to the example of the bubble that they give. The the bubble that would be the structural affirmation of a potential form. And like, yeah, and this is what's good about this morphogenetic process view of it. It's not, the structure is not an essence. The structure is kind of a contingent happenstance due to the process that forms it. Exactly. I agree. But it's also there existing as this kind of topological form as a tendency, which is almost this essential thing. But the idea is also that the very structure of these singularities and the multiplicities they constitute is itself going under some uh, changing process. Yeah, and Roger, to clarify, by engaging with all that, right, by acting on it, and even like by by expressing sound through that structure, right, that is the affirmation, right? Uh, I'm not sure that I kind of lost you into all this. Can you, can you just reframe it? Sure. Um, that is to say, like, so we, we take the structurality of, like, say, Audacity, which is a software that does the, the whole, like, uh, expression of sound bites. analysis, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you have Audacity, and you put something into that, and that is affirming it, right? Because you're, you're forcing, I shouldn't say you're forcing, but uh, that the... This, the this the waves and everything are going to be uh, expressed that by that means. It's going to take on that structure and participate in it, which is the affirmation, correct? Yeah, but uh, audacity, if I know what you're referring to, would be a representation of the actual process that has no uh, representational plane. You're probably right about that, but that's the only way I could visualize it. <laughs> no, 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 but it's, I think it's good to have a representation of it, but like never reduce it to the representation because the processes don't need to be represented to exist. I would agree with that, right? Even without audacity, that sound is still there. Yes, exactly. It's the reverse. The representations need some process that constitutes them. In order mm-hmm. to exist. Um, so we talked about a lot of stuff. I've got 25 minutes left. Um, I think my goal would be to try to make it a couple pages more in here. Does that sound good to folks? Or do we want to keep talking about uh, the first half of this chapter? Um, so he goes into summarizing his argument. Uh, at page 19. Yeah. I mm-hmm. think we can go into the summary so we can actually get something out of this. Cool. So it's the second paragraph. I can let you go with this or I can like read it a little bit and then, you know, we can talk about it. Why don't you start reading? I'll scroll towards it. All right. Here. Let me pause for a moment to summarize the argument so far. I began by establishing some purely formal differences between the concept of essence and the multiplicity. While the former concepts implies a unified and timeless identity, the latter lacks unity and implies an identity which is not given all all at once, but is defined progressively. And while essences bear 
to their instantiation the same relation which a model as to its copies, that is, a relation of greater or lesser resemblance. Multiplicity, multiplicities imply divergent realization in which bear no similarity to them. So that final phrase there, I think, is talking about the differentiation, is it not? I think it... I don't think you have to put it in those terms because if I'm understanding right, the multiplicity okay. and the potentiality, right, and then you have next to that the the actuality. Is that correct? Yeah, and then the following sentence, he says, uh, those formal differences, blah, 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 uh, are insufficient to characterize the distinction between essences and multiplicities as immaterial and entities whose jobs is to account for the genesis of form. So see, now we go into another level because the multiplicity can be act like physical, actual and real, but they can also be immaterial entities. For example, diagrams that, uh, that plays in the background. Right. Immaterial or Well, so what, yeah, this is confusing to me about, diagram a little bit because i was thinking immaterial entities as like yeah the virtual the potentialities are still real things entities in a sense but what is a diagram as an entity so so this is yeah this this will be complicated to go into but the diagram is what actually gives the function to a thing um so if if we try to go, because um, the material entities, uh, even if they're not materialized, they still exist and they they are still real. They are into the virtual, but um, we we had the discussion about the blueprint with uh, Kent. I wish he was there still because he would yeah. he would go into it and make it a better. He would give a better understanding than I do. Um, but it's not being it, it's not it's not because it's not been actualized that is not real and it's not present into the situation for example yeah i think too you have a if i'm understanding too you kind of have a different purpose going on right instead of having multiplicities and essences work to explain how forms arrive or, or where forms come from, you're doing away with that instead looking at trying to explain how things are going through a morphogenesis, which seems to be like uh, continual, be like transformative beginnings that are themselves transforming. Is, is that fair? Uh, yeah, I think you're referring to the text uh, that follows. Unlike essences, which is assume that matter is a passive receptacle of external forms, multiplicities are immanent to material processes, defining their spontaneous capacity to generate pattern without external intervention. So the the diagram, to, to take that uh, that term again, is internal to things. It's not something that is being placed externally or you know, it's not an essence that is being placed into the thing. It's the diagram expressing itself as a thing. 
there's like a some aspect of kind of self-representation going on or even self-reference uh this i don't know <laughs> okay i think it's like instead of saying you can explain things in terms of these forms that is to say like instead of saying you can take a solid and explain it in terms of a solid apart from the um the materiality of it all instead you're looking at those processes that are giving rise to the solid is, is that a fair way to kind of minimally say it because i think i'm reducing definitely, it a little yeah. bit too much no, definitely that's like I mean, that's for sure, yeah, the core idea. And for me, the hang-up is on getting this from a kind of formal difference between equivalent formal descriptions and, you know, what makes one of these inequivalent as a philosophy to the other. You mean how they relate and how they differ? I mean, yeah, how, so the whole thing is that uh, there's the formal notions that Deleuze is drawing upon and that Delanda is uh, helping us understand. And um, like, for instance, in particular, there's uh, one of the footnotes to the section. Um, which one am I thinking of? So this is footnote 20. Um, so here in footnote 20, um, Delana talks about how in difference and repetition, um, we didn't talk about this too much explicitly, but uh, Delana explains things in terms of the symmetry breaking, how the uh, group of invariants that classifies uh, a geometric or a topological space in mathematics, um, they have these relations where the you, know, you have a cube only has uh, a discrete number of um, transformations you can apply to it that bring it back onto itself, whereas a sphere has got an infinite number. And so there's this kind of measure of like how much something can have more symmetry relative to a different geometric figure. Um, but that Deleuze didn't actually use this. He used it to some other method of adjunction of fields. Um, but, uh, you know, the essence that I was drawing from this is that we've got like different equivalent formal ways of thinking about things that we're drawing on uh, and somehow trying to get some, yeah, informal philosophical uh, new concept out of that that isn't equivalent to the old thing right we're moving somewhere else yeah yeah and so and me, it's just very much obscure exactly how this will occur it seems uh very tricky <laughs> I, I think it's just what he says there, right? Where no longer is matter something we use. No matter is matter. No longer is matter going to be a bucket we place the world in. Instead, we're going to understand that the world is sort of arising through this morphogenetical 
this morphogenesis. So right, instead of the forms being static above us, and therefore we can put everything into them and look at it from look look above ourselves, instead we're looking down at the things that that are actually there and what's underlying um, their actuality and potentialities relative to structurality. Yeah, I mean, maybe what I'm trying to get is this kind of notion that I've seen pop up in uh, continental philosophy that we can't really formalize these things, uh, you know, the kind of gaps uh, that occur when we try to really think through metaphysics. Um, and so that's part of what I'm wondering is like, maybe this formal approach is just going to be too limited no matter uh, how hard we try. Aren't those the broken symmetries, though? Aren't what the broken symmetries? Uh, those gaps and things like that doesn't. No, I mean I'm talking more about like the uh, idea of like we don't know how to like fit you know subjectivity into our formal sciences. I would respond. It's not structurally allowed. <laughs> well, that's what I'm saying. Is like is that. And is that, you know, possible disallowance meaning that the formal kind of structural perspective based on mathematics and contemporary science is maybe misleading us slightly? And we have to be very careful about how seriously we take these metaphors? Mm, I think I seriously, and you're saying that our reference point has its own structurality, and so we've got to be mindful of that when we're using it for metaphorical reasons. Yeah. Okay, I'll buy that. <laughs> so do we try to wrap up um, what has been said in this chapter? I know we haven't gone yeah. that far, but uh, at least, you know, wrap it up with multiplicity. Um, yeah. So at page 20, yeah. to the first paragraph. Yeah. I'll volunteer to read it. Yeah, I did. Because uh, it's about the metaphorical still. So if you go into this. You want to read, Jack? Sure. No doubt, despite all my efforts, these remarks remain highly metaphorical. First of all, I have defined multiplicities in terms of attractors and bifurcations, but these are features of mathematical models. Given that I want the term multiplicity, to refer to a concrete universal, to replace abstract general essences. The question may arise as to the legitimacy of taking features of a model and reifying them into the defining traits of a real entity. Second, the relation between a continuum of multiplicities and the discontinuous and divisible space of our everyday world was specified entirely by analogy with a purely mathematical construction, the hierarchy of geometries, first dreamt by Felix Klein. Eliminating the metaphorical content will involve not only a thorough ontological analysis of state space so that its topological invariance can be separated from its variable mathematical content, but in addition, a detailed discussion of how these topograph topological invariants may be woven together to construct a continuous, 
yet heterogeneous space. In the following chapter. So, so if we if we start if we stop there and uh, see what we can get out of this, Al basically is is admitting that he is talking about the structure of reality instead of processes. So that these metaphors are still inadequate to see how processes are actually um, expressing themselves. Right. And I'm very curious to find out how this construction will work in the next chapter. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think I see that, right? Because instead of relying on the metaphorical um, that's already constituted in, in terms of the system we're trying to move away from, right? He's talking about um, having multiplicities be the the concrete universal, right? Like the the multiplicity of matter, so to speak, as opposed to the form of matter. Um, oh, sorry, I was doing out there. Can you say that again? Right. So in, instead of so, I, I, as I'm reading, he's saying that um, instead of relying on like the the mathematical models and everything that's already kind of grounded in that other system that we're trying to move out of through Deleuze. Um, what he's saying is in order to do that, he has to place multiplicity um, in terms of a concrete universal. That is to say, like, instead of relying on the form of matter, we're talking about the multiplicity of matter. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think, you know, the trick for him actually accomplishing his goal of convincing analytic philosophers or even scientists to uh, think about these ideas uh, is to, yeah, show somehow that these metaphors are insufficient in a very convincing manner. Yeah, because ultimately we're going to have to shift our thinking here. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, um, you know, we can wrap things up pretty much here. The rest of this chapter is taking another more detailed analysis of the nature of multiplicities. I'm definitely going to uh, reread over that again and try to figure out this thing about differentiation and differentiation because I still don't feel like I totally get that. Um, and then somehow by the end of... Uh, Chapter two, where does he say that? At the end of chapter two, the metaphor of the genesis of a metric space through a cascade of broken symmetries should have been mostly eliminated and the literal account taking its place. Um, yeah, I hope we can uh, get to that point next week because that's like kind of the, the key thing here, right? That's kind of... The, the proof of concept that uh, analytic philosophers and scientists should be paying attention. I'm going to take your word for it because I am neither. <laughs> <laughs> You're already paying attention. In my defense, no one is perfect.